This episode is brought to you by Evermill. Evermill makes the world's most elegant spice rack that features text-to-refill organic spices in compostable packets, as well as a suite of kitchen products that help you cook so you can focus on sharing meals with the ones you love. This episode is brought to you by Equipped. Equipped is a modern luxury fitness brand that creates stylish, compact, portable, and versatile fitness equipment that will inspire you to move anytime, anywhere, whether you have half a minute or half an hour. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Lee Green, and welcome back to the show. This is episode 145, and today I sat down with Scout Brisson, the CEO of Dessois. Dessois is a sparkling, ready-to-drink, non-alcoholic brand that was co-founded by global pop superstar Katy Perry and multi-award-winning master distiller Morgan McLaughlin from Amass. Scout talks about her childhood growing up as a middle child with engineer parents in Morristown, New Jersey to becoming the captain of her cross-country team, to attending MIT, where she struggled with an eating disorder and had to learn how to overcome perfectionism and the desire to overachieve. We talk about her experience working at McKinsey and M13, where she learned about co-founder dynamics and how she got promoted from general manager to CEO of Dessois in just 11 months. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe, leave us a review, and check us out on stairwaytoceo.com, where you can catch up on past episodes and read product reviews on our blog. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Hey, Scout. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm excited to hear your story in becoming CEO of Dessois. Did I get it right? Dessois. Yeah, you nailed it. It's not de soy, people. I was saying that, and I'm happy to be finally corrected by Scout here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm very excited to chat and chat about all things de soi and my path and really appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. You're in LA too, aren't you? Yes. Where in LA are you? In Marina del Rey. I used to live in Marina. I'm in Woodland Hills now, but Marina is amazing. I love it. Yeah, I feel like I get the best setup here. I live in a building that is basically a retirement home for 30-year-olds. So we've got a pool and a gym and tennis courts. And I'm learning how to play tennis, which I'm very excited about because pickleball got me out on, on the courts. That's awesome. Are you right on the marina? Yes. I think I know where you live. So right, but you know, across the street, there's that huge yellow building. The Jamaica Bay Inn. No, I think it's called Marina 41. Yes, 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 yes. That's where I used to live. Okay. Then we, we were neighbors in a past yeah. life. <laughs> we were neighbors a few years ago. Maybe. Yeah. No, you probably weren't even in LA at that point, but we'll get your story. Where did you grow up? Because you're from the East Coast, I think, right? Yeah. Well, I was born in California, but lived there for a few years. My parents moved us to New Jersey, one of the suburbs outside of Philadelphia, so really spent my entire childhood high school in a New Jersey suburb, about 20,000 people big. My high school class was like 350 people. What's this area called? Morristown. Oh, Morristown. right. Yeah. I'm from Delaware. So I, okay. on the other end of Philadelphia. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we're always the from Philly people. <laughs> right. Those Philadelphians. <laughs> so you grew up there. What was it like growing up in small town in Philadelphia? outside of Philly? Yeah, I think it was New Jersey. We should be specific, right? It's like outside of Philly, but it's Jersey. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it felt pretty cookie cutter. It's funny. So my partner grew up in Manhattan and first time that he came to visit Morristown, we were walking on our main street, which is happens to be a very cute, quaint main street. And it was like, I mean, starry eyed, like he felt like I was 
you know, you wave, you see people, you know, at the ice cream shop, right? It's very small town feel. I mean, it never felt like my high school was that small relative to some other towns, but it did have that community feeling to it, you know, and we go back now and it's a lot of my friends who are in the getting married life stage are buying homes in Morristown, which I always think is mind blowing to me because I, I did want to stay a, a little bit. Yeah. I mean, at least where I am right now, I'm in that, you know, live in the warm, sunny, mostly sunny California weather and visit home, but just, yeah, it feels like a different universe. Yeah. You know, it's so funny to think back and there's so many people, you know, from Delaware that never left either. I just always found that so interesting because I think my whole life, like as far back as I can remember and definitely in high school, I was aching to get the hell out, you know? And I remember I had a friend and her mom was like, oh my gosh, high school is amazing. It's the best four years of your life. And I was like, no way. There's just no way. This cannot be the best four years. Like this is nothing compared to what I want to live. You know, the life I want to live. I can't wait to get out. And I wanted to go to New York so bad and no one else really did. It was weird. <laughs> yeah, no, there is this, there are definitely really strong roots. And I think there's a real aspect to me that appreciates that. I mean, my dad was from Kentucky. My mom was from Massachusetts. Their families were all spread out. So we really didn't grow up spending a ton of time with this big extended family, the way that I think a lot of, again, like now what I'm seeing, it's, you know, somebody's parents and then the siblings that also, have, you know, just had kids are all within, you know, a few blocks of each other. Which is amazing because now I have a kid and I'm like, damn it, they I don't care. Do something, <laughs> you know, they were onto something about not leaving. Right. And I know a lot of people, I think, move back home when they have kids for, Good reason. I mean, having grandma and grandpa around is just amazing. So that's definitely a sacrifice with wanting to leave home turf. But yeah, I mean, I was in, you know, and, and I kind of going back to your question about what was it like? I mean, for me, did feel very cookie cutter. I feel like going in high school was like taking the AP classes and I was on sports teams and I was the captain of this, the captain of that, right? And it was just very, it always felt like I was kind of marching on this path. Funnily enough, even though that wasn't I me, mean, my both my parents are engineers by education training, and both my siblings like very engineer heavy family. And I think for me, I just was like kind of that robotic, like get into a good college, like figure out what you want to do in college, like figure out what that next step was, and never I think always had you know look looking back now as I think about what leadership means to me, and I know we'll chat about some of those things, but it's been very interesting to reflect on that time in my life of how I showed up as a leader, but not necessarily as an entrepreneur. Interesting. Tell us more. What do you mean? What were some of the, when you look back, you're like, oh, I was pretty, well, captain of your team. I mean, that's a good example, right? Yeah. I mean, I remember, so I was, I was on the cross country team. I was on the crew team. I actually went on and rode for two years in college, but cross country, I had a great coach and I was captain my senior year. And I just remember, you know, we would do these, it was funny because we called them workouts, like twice a week, we do workouts, <laughs> which were the really intense training that we would do on the track, essentially, or we would do hill runs. And I remember one of those runs, I was playing the positive, encouraging, you know, come on, rah, rah, let's go everyone through one of those hard last reps that we were doing. And afterwards getting really positive feedback from my coach saying you, know, you really lifted everybody up in that last round that we were doing around the track and just the role that I was able to play very intuitively as a leader I think is fun to think about especially when you're in a formal leadership role and you're thinking about how do I show up and how do I continue to develop myself as a leader or be developed by others as a leader and just I always think of it as coming back to okay what is the aspect or the style that's really authentic to me and how I have showed up in those past, again, kind of formal, informal leadership settings. Yeah, that's really interesting. It reminds me of, I interviewed the CEO and founder of Lemon Perfect, and he was a basketball coach and he's an incredible leader. You know, you can just tell that company is complete fire and doing amazing. And he's just got such great energy. And I'm like, wow, yeah, coach, that's a great job to have before becoming an <laughs> entrepreneur or a leader. Like that is exactly you're leading a team when you're a coach. 
So that's really cool. So that, so you have some of these experiences. Do you have any other like earlier memories as a really young kid where you were trying to take, I don't know, control of the class or, you know, being a leader? Yeah. This one I get, I mean, talking about people that I grew up with that still live in Morristown, but I still get made fun of for this, this story. Very young. I used to hang out with two of my best kid friends growing up, two girls, and we were overheard one time by one of the moms. And I was saying in the basement, let's play heaven, I'll be God. (laughs) So I was very much the, you know, you look back and you say people would call the little girls bossy and that's very gendered. And I'm like, that was definitely me. (laughs) I did that to my sister all the time. (laughs) I'd be like, let's play school and I'm the teacher. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, don't get me started on the ways that I, you know, either made my sister who she is or scarred her for who she is. Exactly. Right. It's like, I apologize. (laughs) <laughs> that you had to be a follower. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because I was dominant. I was also playing school. I remember that too, being in, in our basement. And I would I would just teach her it's math. We both really like math. And so I would teach her things that I was learning. And I'm two years older than her. So it was very much like she was getting two years ahead. She's an aero astro engineer. So I take a lot of credit for those basement lessons. Yeah. Your family is like ridiculously smart, I think. <laughs> engineering. And I think you went to med school or something. Like I was listening to one of your interviews and I'm like, okay, you guys are like, you have the really, really smart gene. I feel. Well, thank you. Now I fell off the path of med school, but I think for the best. I know. Well, I can't wait to hear what happened. So what did you want to be when you grew up, when you were a kid, like before you kind of knew what was out there, what did you want to be? I definitely went through different stages. So, I mean, earliest stage, Again, totally random. I wanted to be a dog breeder. I randomly, like that should be my fun fact, but you can point to a dog on the street and I know what kind of dog it is. <laughs> Did you have a dog growing up? No, which I think was what fed into oh, the obsession. Interesting. I, I got one when I was 14, but by that time I was past the dog breeder stage, <laughs> probably for the best. But yeah, then I think after that, I really was thinking about just kind of the subjects that I was the most interested in. So I was I really liked science. I loved my classes I took in high school and biology, chemistry. So I was, I wasn't exactly sure kind of how that would come together for me when I was looking at school. And then I ended up at MIT majoring in neuroscience. So I think I saw potentially, is there a path here to psychology or psychiatry, or is there something in academia for me? And those were the types of things that I was exploring when I initially went from again, kind of post dog breeder stage (laughs) to college. And I think when I was in college, it was interesting because first of all, MIT totally kicked my butt. I mean, it's as hard as people say the first semester is this bizarre experience because you, none of your classes are actually graded. So it's pass, no record. You can't even fail a class. And they do this because they know it's such a big adjustment to go from doing really well, right? And you had to have good grades, good scores to get in to, okay, the average in a class on a given test could be 40%. And so they try to give you this, okay, ease, ease into it experience. But all of a sudden, for me, at least it was, I was thrown from a world where I knew what my focus was. School was my focus, sports, you know, sports in school. And then I was on the crew team, the crew coaches were telling me, okay, don't worry about crew, just get adjusted. It's a big year, a lot of change. Don't worry about this. So I didn't have to worry about crew my first semester. I didn't have to worry about school my first semester. So it was this identity crisis, right? Of like, who am I? What am I spending my time on? I was definitely very homesick. It kind of almost course corrected in that second half of my freshman year where grades were back, crew did matter, and just went super, super hard at school and super, super hard on my studies. And that was kind of a dark year for me. And I I think coming out of it, I gained a lot, but it took time. I actually developed the eating disorder while I was in college. And so there was absolutely this journey for me in the next few years of therapy and nutritionists and group support and just and kind of my making my way through that, which now today I look back and I'm like, how fortunate was I as an 18 year old getting all of the, that time in therapy. And it's still something that I, I do every week because I find so much value in it. But anyways, I came out of that first year 
thinking I wanted to essentially like get my PhD and be in academia. And over the summer, I did a internship in research and just realized how independent the work was and how kind of painstakingly slow it could be. And, you know, listening to postdocs in the lab talk about the fundraising aspect and just like how, what hurdles looked like for them. And I took that step back and I was like, what do I really care about? What am I interested in? And I think I let myself consider this path of being a doctor and being pre-med in a way that I hadn't before because I was too nervous to put that kind of pressure on myself in terms of grades. So my sophomore year in, in college. So where does the pressure come from? I think like you had an enormous amount of pressure, but it sounds like you did so well. So I'm like, what's the pressure? You're like so smart. Where's the pressure coming from? Like, I just feel like yeah. you just know you can, you've like proven you can perform and do super well in school. So I guess, where does that pressure come from? Is it kind of from family? Is it just because you wanted to keep up with what you've been doing? And yeah, what was behind that? Yeah, definitely. There's this insecure overachiever aspect that I was living through in that time. Definitely not from family. I think, I think my parents did a really great job instilling the process and the effort more than the outcome growing up. Um, and I give them a lot of credit for that. But I think I am a middle child. So I have a little bit of I'm an older brother, didn't have to try at school, super, super smart. And I always felt like growing up, I was living in his shadow. And so I think there was a lot of like proving myself that was happening through the process. And then to your point of even after I had proven myself, not feeling like I actually had like, oh, well, I had to work really hard to get there and discounting myself for the amount of work that I had put into something. Mm, yeah, that sounds tough. And maybe got a little unhealthy because of all of that pressure you put on yourself. I mean... I don't know. It's, it's tough. And I know kids put a lot of pressure on themselves in school. I remember this one time I had prepared as much as I could for a test. And I was like probably in high school. And I think my dad was just like, listen, you tried your best. If you fail, it's fine. And I was like, what? Really? Like, <laughs> <I'm allowed? laughs> I can fail. Like that's okay. Well, well, if you say I can fail then fine. I'm just going to go to sleep then. Cause I needed my sleep. I was like, so tired. I was up late. I, I definitely had a thing for procrastinating. So in hindsight, maybe he should have said, Hey, how would you prepare differently next time you can fail, but like, yeah. how can you change instead? He was like, just fail. You'll be fine. You're great either way. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's good advice. It was impactful. It's obviously something I remember to this day and just took so much pressure off of me because yeah, like, I mean, kids. And then if you don't shed that, like, what if I didn't have that moment? What if he was like, Oh, well, you better do good. Or like, you know, had some other kind of response, I might have carried this huge weight for a really long time. And school was never my thing, though. So that wouldn't have been very good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think I mean, to your moment, that was so impactful. For me, it has been maybe something that's happened a little bit more over time. But I always think of it as the 80-20 rule. I mean, that was something that I learned while I was at McKinsey, which is where I ended up after MIT. But it's like, you've got to just drop the perfectionism and the over-precision, which just couldn't be more applicable as, you, as I moved from kind of more corporate into startup world. It's just, there's ambiguity, everything is gray and just getting really comfortable with doing what you can, putting something down on paper and then just... If you got to iterate, you iterate, but then you move on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, those are totally different things. How has it been adjusting? I guess before I do that, let's kind of move through. So after college, you were thinking about pre-med. What made you decide not to pursue that path anymore? Yeah, so when I decided to be pre-med in college, I was a sophomore and I was essentially a year behind on the process because it's a two-year application cycle. So I was going through all my recs in school. I took the MCAT, but I knew I had to take a gap year afterwards. And I just had a friend who had been in my major who had gone into consulting. And essentially she said to me, she's like, Scout, you should check it out. Like, I know you didn't like to do research. Maybe it'll help set you apart when you apply to med school, but you can make some money while you're doing it. I was like, that sounds great. <laughs> oh, okay. So that's how you did it. You did it just to kind of help make money to pay your way through med school. Yeah, so I, I saw it as something of, I think I was just, I've always been someone who really likes to learn and try new things. And so for me, I was like, well, I don't want to do more research in that year. I had done almost three or four years of research in undergrad. And so I just saw it as an opportunity to get exposure to different things in that time between graduating MIT and 
going into or applying to medical school. And three to four years of research, researching what? Oh my God. I was working with rats and we were doing little rat surgeries to implant electrodes. And then we were, you know, watching the different brain regions light up as they were running through the maze. So it was, I was really fascinating, honestly. But yeah, it was different than what I was looking for myself long term. Those poor rats. No, it reminds me of when we used to dissect frogs, you know, and it's like, oh God, the smell is so bad. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you don't get used to it. Yeah. It's not. Oh God. Yeah. I feel like I can smell it right now. Anyways. So after you were there, you're at McKinsey, you got this awesome job. What did you do after that? I know you began working at M13. Was that after McKinsey? Yeah, so I very much took advantage of the McKinsey secondment program. And secondment is just a fancy way of saying externship. And so while I was at McKinsey, I first went to M13, which is a consumer fund based in Santa Monica. And what's called my hypothesis for myself at that point in time was about getting more entrepreneurial. I thought at that point, I had decided that I was enjoying so much being in the business world and didn't feel like going back into the schooling system was the right choice for me. And so I just wanted to continue to explore. And I was really excited about what M13 was doing, both just getting more involved in consumer facing work, because I dabbled in a little bit of that at McKinsey. But they were specifically, they were standing up a venture studio that was focused on incubating and launching new brands. So I thought it would be a great way for me to okay, how does an investor think about it? What does zero to one look like? And absorb a lot of that as I thought about my own entrepreneurial journey. Yeah, I remember talking to them. They had a program called Launchpad or something at M13. And it was, I think, sponsored by PepsiCo. Was that the one that you were part of? So before PepsiCo, they worked with Procter & Gamble. So mm, I joined when they yeah. were partnering with Procter & Gamble. And while I was there, we launched three different brands all in partnership with P&G. And that ranged from one was in the menopause care space, one was in the skincare space, and one was in the beauty devices spaces. And what our team was focused on was taking this product and this IP that P&G had developed, building a founding team, and ultimately ex helping accelerate their growth. And we were really focused on direct-to-consumer channels as a part of that. I remember them talking about that. That's interesting. And so you really got to see companies go from zero to one in that experience, right? Because where you were an associate, I think, right? So you were seeing yes. kind of all the other founders that were kind of hired on to build these businesses and you were able to learn from their experiences probably and help guide them along the way. How was that experience? I mean, I learned a lot. I mean, I think I, I think I learned a lot about what I didn't know too. And I spent a lot of time thinking about how do you build a founding team, right? It was like, what are the skill sets that you want for a certain business? And what does the ideal dynamic look like? And is it four people? Is it five? Is it two? And it was definitely very interesting for me thinking through that just early, early stage of what it takes to get something off the ground. What is some of the advice and things that you learned about building a founding team? Yeah. So I think number one, complementary skill sets. So we are definitely focused on, okay, is there an ops finance person, a marketing person? I think also that dynamic between two founders or multiple co-founders was very, very important. And so we were trying to solve for that in, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but in an organic way too, because we were bringing people together. For the first time, right? Who didn't yeah. know each other. That was like my thing when I was thinking about that program. I'm like, these are a bunch of strangers that are going to mm -hmm. be part of this like thing. And you have to launch something with them in three months. And like, how do you trust anybody in three months or think that you're going to be able to work with them? Especially when I don't think there's any real personality tests that are being done to decipher who has natural skill sets and what versus whatever. I mean, to me, this is like a no brainer that every single person should be given a disc assessment or something so that you can clearly identify who is going to be a great CEO and who's not, or who's better to be a COO. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that was like, we were looking at things like, what are the types of questions people need to ask about getting to know each other and speed dating? We also had them do a personality assessment. So and what we were doing wasn't even three months. This was like a four-day interview process that was happening. So I, I, I'm, you know, looking at those businesses. I think there were definitely some co-founder partnerships that went really well, and there were some that broke apart early on, and that those cracks were exposed. So it certainly was 
it was learning, but I think for for me, as I was looking at, okay, what are the really valuable skill sets that people are bringing to the table? It was a little bit of a mirror that I was holding up on myself as well. And I had a very generalist background up until that point in time. And I was like, oh, okay, like, we're not really looking for generalists. That wasn't the strategy. <laughs> and so even though I learned a ton about what are investors looking at, and probably the biggest thing coming out of McKinsey into that environment was creative problem solving and just how do you be scrappy when you don't have a lot of resources. But then, yeah, I looked at myself and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm still on the sidelines here. Like I actually want to get my hands in and be an operator and try my hand at something functional. Interesting. So you said that they do take a personality test. Do you know which one they take? And did you take it? I did take it and I cannot remember for the life of me. I, I was raised on MBTI when I was at McKinsey. So it's like, that's the thing that has stuck with me along the way. Oh, okay. And what does that say about you? What are your strengths and weaknesses? So my strengths, I'm an extroverted problem solver. And it kind of goes through, I don't know if you're familiar with it. Mine is ENTJ. So N is like, I'm a big picture thinker. T is that I'm more kind of facts-based in my decision-making versus emotional. And then the J is that I, I mean, I make to-do lists for everything, my personal life, my professional life, very organized kind of type A. I think I'm the same ENTJ, but it's been a while since I've taken it. I like the test, like the DISC assessment, I feel like it's so much more specific to like, I don't know, natural and adaptive behavioral styles. I found it a lot more informative. Like I got more from it, but that's just me. I'll have to take that one. I love when people psychoanalyze me. Yeah, okay. <laughs> D-I-S-C. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. When was the last time you looked in your spice drawer? If you're like me, you probably have to look at it every time you cook, which is a lot. And it looks like a complete disaster. Different size seasonings, different brands, it's a mess and totally uninspiring. That's until I discovered Evermill, the most beautiful and inspiring spice rack I've ever seen. And it looks gorgeous both on your countertop for everyone to see and compliment, or it looks great in your spice drawer too. Not to mention, they send you refills in compostable packets that you can get delivered straight to your door simply by sending a text message. So if you're looking for an amazing gift idea, you have to check it out. They also just released two new products, a white marble salt well and an aluminum pepper mill perfect for the person who you think has everything. You can get 15% off by using the promo code stairway15 on evermill.com. That's 15% off site-wide for the first time ever using the code stairway15 at evermill.com. Do you struggle to find time to go to the gym or even just work out at home somehow? What about the ugly weights you're probably hiding in your closet or under your bed? Out of sight, out of mind, am I right? Meet Equipped, a female-founded luxury fitness brand with a no-pressure approach to movement that creates gorgeous weights that look so good, you can place their U-shaped weight called the U-bar on your coffee table and your friends will probably think it's a new art piece. Or if you're on the go, just throw on their U-wrap super stylish vegan leather ankle weights so that you can get a little workout in while running your errands in style. Featured in everything from Vogue to the Financial Times, Equipped makes it easier to move through life. And if you're looking for a great gift idea this holiday season, you can get 20% off on EquippedMovement.com using the promo code STAIRWAY20. That's 20% off luxury fitness equipment using the code STAIRWAY20 on EquippedMovement.com. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. So you really kind of understood co-founder dynamics, how to identify complementary skill sets for the leadership team. You're like, I'm a generalist. Where do I fit on this whole scale of having to hire specialists as a company? What did you decide to do after M13? Yeah. So after M13, I went to Stars, the streaming service, and I joined there. I, I was a mixed role. I, I was doing both growth marketing and retention marketing while I was a part of that team. And I saw, I was seeing, right, working on DTC businesses, how valuable it was to really understand growth. And that's what definitely enticed me to go over into that role. And I'd say it was a bit of a step away from really consumer packaged goods where I've continued my journey since then, but 
very interesting to be in a subscription-driven business and thinking about the customer and lifetime value and what's that dynamic between paying to acquire a customer and how long you retain them and, and what are the trade-offs and how do you invest dollars throughout the course of the year. Awesome. And then I know that you worked at a company called Doe. You were one of the co-founders. Tell us about what it was like to work at your first startup. Yeah. So I co-founded Doe in, let's see, it was roughly May, June, 2020. So start of COVID. And it was wild times. I mean, wild times for all of us, right? At the start of the pandemic, I think for the product that we were creating, people were craving comfort. They were craving health. I certainly, you know, as I think about kind of my, my journey and the story I was sharing around my eating disorder in college, like I had come a long way in terms of how I allow myself to indulge, but also honor that outer wisdom of how something's going to make me feel. And so that was a lot of the inspiration for me as I was in my kitchen in Marina Del Rey working on that product. But I think it was all just a, like a whirlwind of learning something new for the first time every single day. I mean, I didn't know what a co-packer was when I, I was starting that business and I was the COO. <laughs> so you figure out what a pallet is, you figure out what a co-packer is, you scale something up, you go through, I mean, gosh, I made that recipe in my kitchen. Like you figure out how to bring experts into the process. And it's always this balance, right? Of, okay, am I going to use Google to figure something out, out myself? Am I going to phone a friend? Is this something that I need to invest in and just continuing that seesaw act throughout the journey. So I think you must have met Sabina because we've had her on the show. I think she's episode number 70 or something rolling in the dough. So you guys, did you meet at M13? Because I know that she was also at M13. Yeah. So she hired me at M13. Oh, amazing. So you guys kind of came up with this idea to launch the cookie dough brand and you were there. And then, so how did Dessois come along? Like, how did that happen? I mean, what a cool opportunity. Can you kind of walk us through what that was like? Yeah. So I left Doe in spring of 2021. And it was right around that time that I was reconnecting with a friend. And he knew Katie and Morgan, our two co founders, and had heard my story. We both came from McKinsey. So it was like, okay, consulting background, very structured problem solver, had gotten more into the startup space with M13 and then Doe and knew that they were looking for someone to come in and help essentially launch Deswap because it hadn't launched at that time. So Katie and Morgan, they had been working on the business since 2020 as well. They had met early that year when they were both pregnant, looking for something non-alcoholic. And Morgan's background is in alcohol. She's a master distiller and really understands how to create interesting and complex beverages. So they had really been deep in everything, brand, packaging, supply chain, you name it, when I met them. And I officially came on board in October of 2021 as general manager. And so were you kind of like their first hire who was kind of like the generalist to come in and help with the day-to-day? Kind of. So Morgan is the co-founder at Amass, which is a line of botanical infused spirits. And Amass really acted in the early days as the incubation platform for Dessois. So I was the first full-time hire on Dessois, but there was a whole team of people that we were leveraging and shared services into the first few months that I was acting as GM. But when we launched in January, we fully split those teams apart. So since then, it's been, you know, me with a full-time team working on Jaswa. And so what was it like for the first few months working on the brand? It was fun. It was interesting because we did continue to have supply chain challenges. I came in with two co-packers, one for our cans and one for our bottles. And our bottle co-packer just would not pick up the phone. We couldn't get them locked into anything. We were supposed to gosh, I mean, they wanted to launch that brand. They had been wanting to launch the brand for like at least six months by the time I came in. And so I think at least thinking about my experience in ops at Doe, I understood more of the craziness of manufacturing as an early, you know, food and beverage brand. And so I was able to, alongside the team, get some scrappy solutions in place and launch the business. And I guess it was three months after I started and we were off to the races after that. But it was fun. And it was a different type of challenging because we were very well resourced. And, you know, at that time, pretty 
large team as well. And so it was a different dynamic coming in. Well, and now being, you know, in the CEO role, very different dynamic, I think being a founder turned CEO versus being a hired CEO. And so also living through that experience as well. Yeah. What is that like? And how did the CEO role come to be? Because I think you were only general manager for like less than a year. And so how did the conversation about CEO come about? Did you initially say, this is the role I want? Did they say, this is the role we're eventually hiring for? There's an opportunity to have this role if you start as general manager. Like, how did that conversation go? There was no initial conversation about moving in. I mean, I think that's in some ways it's the beauty and the challenge of in startups. Like you look back even two weeks and you think how much has changed in that period of time. But the Amass CEO, Mark Lynn, was also CEO of Dessois and was in that role until I moved into it. And so really it was a conversation with him and our board and thinking through what was best for Dessois, right? And ultimately all of us decided that having a dedicated management team was going to lead to the most success, both from you know, what external investors are looking for, as well as just really clear structure for the team as well. And so I moved into the CEO role in August last year, and we also brought on our COO, John Cochran, who has phenomenal experience operating and, and scaling beverage businesses. So he's been a great partner and expert as we're doing a lot of this for the first time. I'm just, I'm so curious how that conversation <laughs> went, right? I'm just imagining yeah. this board meeting and they're like, so Mark, uh, you know, you've got this other company, maybe we should like have someone full-time CEO, like full-time on Dessois. And then like, all of a sudden it's quiet and they look over at you. <laughs> Like, you know, how did this whole conversation go? Or were you like, I'll do it? You know, I don't know how maybe like aggressive is not the word, but like, did you kind of vouch for yourself to be CEO or did they kind of all look at you as, hey, you're here, you know what you're doing here. So would you like to be CEO? You know, I mean, it's a big role and it's big shoes to fill. So I'm just curious how that conversation went. Yeah, it was not me. I did not have the idea. It was in some ways it was beyond like, this sounds so cheesy, but beyond my wildest dreams when I initially started talking. I mean, the conversation started with Mark and I, and we were just talking about what my path looked like, what my ownership and responsibility looked like in the business. And he came back to me and he said, I think I have a solution. And then there was, you know, there were things that I was looking to solve and there were things that he was looking to solve. And this was the one, and he still sits on our board and is very involved. And so this was the one where it was like, at that point, he and I had, work together on it, right? He understood me, understood my values, my way of working, and just recognized, I suppose, my potential, right, into stepping into that. And I, I give him a ton of credit because, you know, I'm, I'm the jockey, right, that he's betting on <laughs> for this race. Totally. You are. Absolutely. That's such an amazing opportunity. And so that's why I'm like, how did this come about? You know, that's such an interesting thing. So he was like, hey, I think you'd be a great CEO. And, and he's on the board so he can help support. And so what has it been like being CEO for what, six months now? Yeah, time flies. I mean, it's great. I think it's very, very rewarding. I think there's a lot of even though as general manager, I was overseeing much of the day-to-day, -day, I think strategy was sitting at a level higher. And now, you know, it's me and the board and we're figuring out the strategy alongside the management team and then working with the team every day to execute on that. I think the, the biggest change has probably been the people management side of it and thinking about now, you know, fully embracing what does it look like to build a culture at Dessois? Do we go into the office every day? <laughs> Do we turn our videos on in meetings, right? Like just these very kind of basic questions. And then how do you motivate people and how do you keep them excited? And we're all working really hard. So how do we make sure that people aren't, aren't getting burnt out? But I think there's, yeah, probably two, the three biggest things that I took on as, as part of this role versus what I was doing before was a lot of the people management, the strategy and, and thinking about kind of the direction of the business. Did you manage anyone before, or is this your first management role? I had managed before, but not, not a team at this size. So I'd manage, you know, like one or two people at a time. And usually in capacities that they had similar functional responsibilities that I had, 
And I think that's been an interesting learning for me too, is managing before John came on board, I was managing our head of sales and I was managing our marketing person. And so you're managing all these different pieces that I've never been a salesperson. I've never been a brand marketer, but still understanding kind of where to push and where you can add value, how you can also help coach and elevate people and empower the people on your team. Such an exciting experience because it's so entrepreneurial in itself. Even if you're not a co-founder, you're really like in the trenches trying to figure it out. And that's literally just entrepreneurship in a nutshell. It's like you're just day-to-day figuring it out and you didn't, probably don't know what you're doing. <laughs> and that's okay because that's yeah. what it's like. Yeah, a thousand percent. And it's funny because we haven't talked about this a ton, but Katy Perry as our co-founder, I think coming into it, it's like from the outside in, you can look at celebrity founded brands and think that it's different than your average startup. But I'm someone who came from, you know, bootstrap startup into this. I'm like, no, there's a whole set of things that don't just get flipped on for you that you have to figure out every single day, whether it's an operation thing, like I was talking about, or opening up a retail door, but it's like, yeah, it all still takes as long. And it all still takes as much like ramming your head against the wall. Yeah. It's like any business you start, it's so hard. (laughs) It's all just challenging, but what's it like? I know everybody listening is like Katy Perry. Oh my God. How cool. Does she just like stroll into the office where you, you know, how does it work? How does it, what's it like working with Katy? She's phenomenal. I mean, she's so energetic and excited and competitive too. Like I think she's very excited about Deswa being a leader in this space, but it really, I would say, I mean, actually, she said this on a call, we were on a call in December. And she's like, I think I'm a marketing leader in a past life. Like she's just got really creative ideas for the things that we're doing on the marketing side of the business and the way that we strategize around asset creation and how the visual components of the brand come to life. And then I think she's just great at being involved and understanding where she can add the most value as well. And so if it's okay, you know, we're working on our next flavor, right? Like how do we, how do we get your feedback and tasting this and bring this out to your friends and just think through that experience. So she's been a wonderful partner. And I think just understands that there's a ton of, of unparalleled unlocks that she can bring to Deswa when she leans into them. It's so funny to hear what you just said in the fact that she thinks that in a past life, she was doing marketing. Cause like, I, I think probably a lot of people, at least for myself, like she has to market herself every day. Like it's like, she's already been doing marketing probably her whole life for herself. Yeah. Intuitively. Right. And I mean, I shouldn't make assumptions, but yeah. I mean, she's a massive personal brand. She's had to market herself forever. Right. She's an icon. I mean, that is marketing in itself. Like yeah. So I just find it really funny that she's like, I think I was a marketing person in a past life. It's like, no, I, I think it's this life. I'm pretty sure this is the life that Harry was being a marketing person and a celebrity at the same time. Cause it's all combined, you know, Yeah, you're selling yourself all day. That's so interesting. So it sounds like a lot of fun to be able to work with someone like Katie. And where do you guys see this brand going? Obviously world domination and category leadership, but I guess what's next for the brand? What can we see coming out? So we're definitely excited this year to get on more shelves and more places as quickly as possible. So I mean, even this month, we're launching in Central Market in Texas. We've got, we should have any day now, many doors open in Southern California with GoPuff and BevMo. So you can find us on the app or in store. And thinking about, you know, continuing to expand our portfolio of, of SKUs. So as I mentioned, there's a new SKU that we're working on that I'll just tease is going to be very fun for summer. And then I think really leveraging the team that we've built to continue to educate. I think that where this category is, we're positioned for a breakout year for non-alcoholic adult beverages. But I think knowing that we've got Katie, who has this huge audience and platform, that how do we think through that with her of using her platform to amplify, not just a slaw, but the entire category. She's an authentic consumer. I mean, she had discovered Seed Lip and was drinking non-alcoholic champagne on her flight to Dubai before she ever even met Morgan, right? So she is someone who really, like many of our customers, she, she likes to drink, but she also likes to take time off and is realizing in a, in a stage of life that that's very, very essential. So I think continuing to, to put that 
word out there, right? That there's a place for these sophisticated beverages that some people are discovering or will discover. And we can discover them right now. So I have the sparkly, it's sparkling non-alc aperitif, where I think is like a funny word, aperitif, I guess is what aperitif. it's. Yeah. 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 That's obviously a French word. Not sure exactly what it means. I think it's like a, a dessert thing, wine or something, right? Isn't that, what's the word mean? So aperitif is traditionally very bitter, something that opens you up to a meal. Oh, it's before the meal. Mm-hmm. What am I thinking of that's after the meal? Like a digestive? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> that would make sense that I would get those two confused. <laughs> so this one's Purple Loon. And there's a lot of like really good stuff in here that I can't pronounce like ashwagandha. Yes. So we have adaptogens in all of our SKUs. So Purple Loon of the three flavors that we have out now is the fullest bodied. It's got tart cherry. It's got notes of cacao and balsamic vinegar, as well as black pepper. So you'll notice it's an experience, kind of each it is good. sip takes you on a different journey flavor-wise. Amazing. And so it's got some green tea in here and it tastes really good. It definitely has that tart cherry. You can taste that right away. Yeah. Yeah, that one's the most cherry forward. And the green tea, yeah. So the green tea is actually L-theanine de derived from green tea. So there's no caffeine, but it helps with some of the relaxation components that the other adaptogens bring as well. Nice. There's a little boost. And what about this one? Golden hour. Yeah. So golden hour is the lightest and brightest of the three. It's got some zesty notes in there from the lemongrass. So you almost get ginger from it. Yeah, you're right. And then there's lemon balm and citrus notes. So it's very refreshing. I find that one to be my favorite served over ice during the day. Yeah, this one's really good too. I think my favorite out of these two is the purple loon. Even though the cherry is tart, it's really good. But I'm also just, yeah. you know, like everybody has their preferences. But my favorite is the purple loon. That's my favorite too. Is it? And Katie's, yeah. Well, look at us. We have great taste. Same as Katie. I think so. <laughs> I'm going to tell all my friends. That's amazing. We have the same favorite dissoir, okay? Anyways, so what are some of the biggest challenges that you've faced or that you've learned about leadership? What advice do you have? And what are some of the things that you've learned in this leadership role? Yeah, I think I've spent a lot of time thinking about my personal values around leadership. And I say personal because I think there's just such a myth around showing up in the workplace as like, oh, there's professional scout and there's scout outside. It's like, no, no, no. When you're especially at this stage and you're doing what you're doing, like there's just one me. <laughs> and so I think a lot about, okay, if for me, vulnerability, empathy, like these are things that I bring a lot. I like to wear my heart on my sleeve. Like I like to bring those into the workplace and into my style as a leader. And I think that's able to cultivate, I think, relationships and a sense of trust and psychological safety around essentially the dynamic that you have with, with, whether it's your direct reports or your direct reports, direct reports. Yeah, I've spent a lot of time thinking about how that ultimately comes to life day to day. And have you had to do any fundraising yet for the brand? We've been out there talking to investors. Yes, I have. How's that going? I mean, it's honestly, I sang this to a friend the other day who is kicking off her fundraising process. And I said, if there are days when you feel like it's a drag, try to think of it as the time that you get to spend not just selling your business, but thinking about the big picture, the strategy, the vision, the things that are working, right? Because those are all the things that you're bringing to those conversations. And I've actually found it energizing because I get to take those moments and then bring that back when, you know, I'm, I'm doing that one job that kind of only the CEO can do. And then coming back to the team and being able to share that in the minutia of whatever they're working on. So I I mean, it's always very up and down, right? And it's weird economic times right now that a lot of founders are going through, but I try to focus on the positives of the experience. Yeah, we got to stay positive with the fundraising, <laughs> right? Because there's a lot of no's. So you got to stay strong. Has anything been shocking to you at all about the fundraising process? Maybe not shocking, but just in general, this idea of again, kind of coming into this role, I think just how much of a village it takes, right? Or a village that there is around what 
my job responsibilities at the end of the day, right? Like I have really, really phenomenal people sitting on the board, really phenomenal investors that I inherited that I didn't bring on board that I think just make doing what I'm doing every day. And this again, kind of like weird, scary time, just so much easier because we're all in it together. And I think that's like the purest sense of it being, you know, a team, but I, I think it can be easy from the outside in to look at co-founders or to look at execs and be like, Oh, it's lonely at the top, but like, you really do need, again, whether it's folks that sit on your board of, you know, your board of directors, or if it's advisors, or if it's other founder friends, like, I really do feel like there's this village of people that are supporting Deswa and are really excited about the growth and are excited for me too, to be driving that growth. And that makes a huge difference and something that I wasn't expecting coming into it. That's awesome. I feel like, you know, you're a hired CEO, but you've got like this incredible support group basically built in. And I think a lot of founders that start a company and they're trying to fundraise, they don't have that at all. They're like maybe a solo founder trying to do it themselves. And it's really tough. So congrats on this new exciting role. Thank you. Yeah, it is very exciting. And I think it's the beginning for just why, I mean, we just hit our one year mark a week ago. And so I think the time flies and by this time next year, there will be a whole lot more exciting things to report back on. So what advice do you have as we kind of close up now in our conversation? What's some kind of final advice you have for aspiring CEOs who are like, you know what, I'm just like Scout when I was a kid. I'm a leader. I want to run a company. I feel like I can be CEO. What advice do you have for them? I mean, I think number one is this idea of just believing in yourself, right? And we kind of talked about where I started and putting myself under all this pressure and being insecure and having that self-doubt that was fueling me, but in a really unhealthy way. And I think where I am today, I look at the things that I've been able to accomplish, right? It was like, okay, I wanted to go to med school and I took the MCAT and I crushed the MCAT or I decided I wanted to be at McKinsey and I got there. Am I like any of these things in the places that I am? And I look at that and I'm like, okay, I did it because I said I would. And there's this manifestation component to that, but also persistence and self-belief. And I think just trying to be your own biggest cheerleader while surrounding yourself with people that also affirm you makes the world of a difference because you can fake it till you make it for a certain amount of time, but then you do need those other voices reminding you of, okay, you're doing a great job. And like, yes, these are the facts. Like you can really do this. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Scout, for joining me on the show today. It's awesome to meet you. And congrats again on your awesome role as CEO of Dessois. Thank you. Had so much fun chatting with you. And I'm glad we had a chance to sip Dessois. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.